Hello there. If you could please leave any oversized luggage you might have at the gate, we'll stow it below and ensure you receive it at your destination. Sorry, what's that? You're not traveling by air these days. Oh, mm, well, neither am I, to be perfectly honest. Now, don't get me wrong. I really do want to travel again, but just not yet. I love traveling. Perhaps you do too. So you might think that foregoing air travel during the pandemic is tough. But I like to put things in perspective. Really, it's a luxury. And so in the grand scheme of things, it's not a huge deal. At least not for me. But for my guest? Well, that's another inside story. Today on Inside Stories, we're speaking with Richard. Now, for a change, we're not going to reveal his last name or the specific place where he works, but I can tell you this much. I had an opportunity to work with Richard at kind of a, an offshoot of the aerospace industry for a bit, and he's an interesting guy with a super fascinating job. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. No, no problem. Listen, uh, the basics, just tell us what you do for a living. Uh, so I am uh, an airline pilot. Um, I've been in aviation for about uh, 26 years. And um, I got to the airline industry uh, later on in my career. So only about uh, five years now of that. It's been in, uh, in the large aircraft airline industry. How did you start out? I mean, the obvious answer is at the beginning, but what got you into aviation? I think I, I like... Um, uh, mechanics, physics, and technology. Uh, when I was in high school, that was something I was really interested in. And uh, I was uh, doing a cross-country uh, Canada road trip after high school just for fun. And uh, ended up in Vancouver. And um, I went for something called a FAM flight or a familiarization flight um, at uh, the, the an airport in Vancouver. And uh, just went up for half an hour, just, uh, you know, uh, it was, it was, it was at a, on a whim, pretty much. And uh, after that, I was, I was hooked. So I came back from BC and started into my, uh, my training right away. Did you know when you started out, I know you said just a second ago, it was really only relatively recently that you wound up in that kind of high level uh, commercial piloting. But did you know when you started out that that would maybe be your end goal? Yeah, I wasn't um, in a big rush. I know a lot of pilots have a real uh, ambition to to fly the heaviest or the biggest aircraft. Um, for me, uh, I really enjoyed multiple different things I did. You know, I, I've been a medevac pilot, and I thoroughly enjoyed uh, enjoyed that because of the the medicine science behind it and and the uh, you know the urgency of getting off the ground within 10 minutes of the phone call that type of thing um, and and for that it was a very rewarding job I really enjoyed it I also uh, flew in Africa with the United Nations again a very different uh, experience but hugely rewarding and I, I don't think I would have traded that for another five years at an airline uh, I think that was important for me to do those jobs what kind of work was that with the United Nations? 
Uh, we were based in the Congo and flew back and forth between uh, Kinshasa, uh, the capital city, and um, uh, a city called Goma. And it was uh, bringing uh, UN troops uh, to the front lines in uh, various conflicts that were happening um, around the Congo at the time. Now, before the pandemic, and it, it seems so long ago now, what would a typical day when you're flying be like for you? Could you kind of walk us through the basics of, of what a day would have been like? Yeah, so um, I was flying uh, a fairly large aircraft, uh, 350 seats or something around there. Um, and we would uh, depart Toronto, uh, where I'm based, uh, in the evening, usually anywhere from 7 to 10 at night or something like that, and fly to uh, multiple locations in, in Europe. Um, that was the predominant route. So either uh, the UK or even uh, Athens, um, Rome, uh, Spain, Portugal, multiple cities, and uh, once in a while down to the Caribbean as well. Those were usually handled by uh, smaller aircraft. Um, so we get to work, uh, usually pick up your flight plans and paperwork, uh, and meet at the crew room and then uh, go over, uh, all the weather and, uh, flight planning, fuel planning for the, uh, the trip, uh, for the crossing. And then, uh, make your way down to the aircraft and, uh, start the, uh, the, uh, cockpit setup, which takes about, uh, anywhere from half an hour to 40 minutes to program the flight plan into the computers and uh, double check everything. Um, and then uh, you start off with your uh, briefings to the other pilots. Um, you go through all the settings that are double checked by both pilots and then um, you start boarding the aircraft and, uh, and shortly thereafter you're uh, airborne and on your way to Europe. And that process that you were talking about that takes place in the airport, that crew meeting, what happens there? And is that kind of a, a detailed or time-consuming thing, or is it a fairly uh, casual, fast process? Uh, it's, uh, it depends. Sometimes it's uh, you know, a fairly simple flight. There's not a lot of weather concerns. Um, you can talk with the dispatcher on the phone. Uh, it's a bit of a meet and greet with the, uh, the other crew member. Uh, you may not have met that person ever uh, because, you know, fairly large companies, there's a good chance you've never met a pilot before when you, when you show up to fly with them. So uh, a bit of a meet and greet and then um, a review of the flight plan. So it can get fairly technical if, if there's issues um, like weather or maintenance issues or uh, special passengers, uh, things like that. Um, and, uh, that that can take a long time, but generally it's a fairly quick process. You mentioned in in the cockpit going through things and double checking. We've all seen movies where there's a brief scene in the cockpit and people are going through a checklist. What exactly is a checklist, and why is it so important? Why is it part of every single flight? Aviation uh, has learned through. Uh, the, the worst possible methodology um, over time, which is uh, crashes, uh, where everybody dies, and, and that's really um, tragic. And so we we take those lessons very very seriously, and um, 
I would say a large portion of, of aviation disasters uh, these days are caused by human error. And it wasn't until, I'd say, the last 15 or 20 years that the industry came to the conclusion that humans make errors and there's no way to uh, train someone or to uh, just hire the right person or anything like that. Everybody makes errors. Experts, uh, new people, uh, doesn't matter. So the way they control that is with something called an error trap. So when we make an error, um, we have two people in the cockpit and one will uh, notice the error or procedure will make the error um, present itself <clears throat> um, and or computer systems on board uh, there's lots and lots of checks, checks and balances which will bring the error forth and checklist is one of the uh, methods that error traps um, so we, uh, we do what's called a read and do um, so that's one method when you've got a long list of things you got to do so you just read the checklist and then you do it um, another way is to have a flow. So you go through the cockpit, there's hundreds of different switches that all have to be in the right position, and those are generally memorized by the crew members. Um, so you have, like, for example, a pre-start uh, flow. Go through all the switches in a particular pattern, put them all in the right, right order, and then you go through a checklist of the critical ones that are, um, are going to cause problems later and read the item to the other crew member and the other crew member checks that item and says yes that is in the correct position or check um, so that's what checklists do and they're they're very very uh, they're a very effective error trap how do you make it so that a checklist doesn't seem routine i'm, I'm thinking you know if there was something that i had to do at my job every day it would be easy over time to just kind of go, you know what, I, I know this, right? And to just not give it 110% of your attention. Is it just simply because what you're doing is so important? Yeah, I think um, there is uh, well-documented cases, again, you know, where, where there's been a crash or a major incident, and it comes back to those uh, human errors and... Um, what you're talking about is something called SOP drift or standard operating procedures drifting away from them. And that really comes down to the professionalism of the pilots and also the culture of the company that they work at. Um, many companies that have failed and, and gone through accidents had a bad culture where uh, different pilots would do the same task in different ways because that's the way they wanted to do it. Um, and that's, that's really bad. As I said before, you know, you could meet a pilot in the crew room and have never met that person before ever. And we get into a plane and it's like being a member in an orchestra. You have to play your part. So uh, standard operating procedures are the only way to ensure everybody plays the right part every single time. And it's absolutely perfect. I've read a couple of longer articles in Vanity Fair or New Yorker about airline disasters where the journalist in this case, uh, I think his last name is Longewitz, but he is also a pilot. So he understands the technical procedures 
uh, very, very well. And some of the investigations that I've read where human error has been involved, it's like there's been a, a lapse of judgment or someone made a decision because they felt pressure on them. And I've read further that there's a whole area of this that's known as human factors in aviation. And could you just briefly explain what that human factors means and, and how we try and use what we know about uh, human factors to, to prevent incidents from occurring? Yeah, so human factors in, in aviation um, can have a, a wider uh, application, but I, I think what you're referring to is what's, what's generally referred to as called hazardous attitudes. Um, so in Canada, we, we study some of the major hazardous attitudes that have led to incidents and accidents like machoism or resignation or impulsivity. Um, these are some examples of them. Um, in the past, uh, a good example of a hazardous attitude was uh, in the U.S. there was a lot of military pilots pulled out of military service and then put into the airline industry. And the captains tended to be very uh, authoritative and um, they, they somewhat belittled the first officers. Um, in uh, some other countries around the world, uh, due to social um, pressures, this is very common as well. So what happens is the aircraft gets into a situation, um, what, whatever gets it there um, is irrelevant really, but the first officer notices the problem, the captain doesn't, and the first officer doesn't feel like he can speak up because the captain's being very authoritative or maybe it would dishonor the captain, uh, and the situation is allowed to progress to um, a very dangerous state. Uh, before something is done, or in some cases, it progresses to the point where the aircraft is actually crashed and uh, and everyone is uh, was was killed in the incident. So um, these are something that we try and study. Um, and I go back to standard operating procedures because it's very very simple to identify a standard operating procedure for a given task and as soon as you step outside of that procedure uh, both crew members know instantly that uh, you're kind of in the gray area and you you shouldn't be there unless there's a very good reason to to be doing it a different way um, so you remove that uh, um, problem where people don't want to speak up because you just made it a rule that they have to speak up and maybe the captain won't be uh, offended because he knows it's an SOP and he's expecting someone to speak up. So, again, these uh, these issues have been sort of minimized to the, the greatest extent possible by SOPs. When the pandemic hit really kind of in March in, in North America, things happened fairly quickly. People were being told, don't travel. If you are abroad, come home. How quickly did you realize this was going to impact your work, and, and what was that like for you? Um, initially, I didn't really think it was going to be that bad. Um, and then we started to do uh, repatriation flights where we'd fly somewhere empty and just bring people back. Uh, then I knew it was 
pretty serious. And uh, I remember my last flight um, was down to the Caribbean and back. And uh, um, it's it was it was pretty shocking to to realize that that's it. You know, uh, I think um, for a, a really large portion of the aviation industry in, in the pilots anyway. Uh, piloting is is carried in your persona somewhat and your and your identity and for for the industry to have that just sort of ripped from under them uh, is being extremely hard for for a lot of people i i can imagine and i i imagine it must have felt really pretty eerie to be flying an empty aircraft down and and coming back with people it just must have been so tangible in a way that that those of us who were not flying aircraft full of people and bringing them back home would not have an understanding of what what was going through your mind when you were having time to reflect uh, on on those days. I think I was, I was thinking about the, the the company, the airline. I mean, to to fly a big big jet like that, empty is is incredibly ins- expensive, um, and uh, for for the government to to be making, you know, this instant change to everything we did, um, you know, these airlines are are um, operated on a fairly very thin margin of profit, and this is something that just uh, it's unadaptable. You you can't you can't change fast enough to deal with something like this big. Have you been in touch with other pilots uh, during the pandemic? And if so, what are you hearing from them? Yeah, I've, I've talked to lots of other pilots. Um, and it, it, it's a very, very serious situation. I, I, uh, I you know, when, when you go flying, uh, the guy sitting next to you or the girl sitting next to you could be, uh, you know, different political stripes or di- interested in different things or whatever. And, and you always, you know, got around conversations you didn't want to have, or you, you, you were polite and professional and, uh, and it worked. You, you, it was never a problem in the cockpit, but now, you know, on Facebook, uh, there's, there's groups that, uh, that I follow and the, the amount of, of, I would say insecurity in, in the comments is palpable. Uh, people are fighting um, and, and being really, I would say, cruel to each other as social media tends to, to, to bring that out in people. But this is our, our group and it's, it's really sad to see, uh, you know, one person um, uh, slamming on another person because they believe in masks or they don't. Um, where, you know, before it was, it's pretty simple. You went out and got your, your job done. Um, but you know, maybe that guy is, uh, married to a flight attendant and they both have lost their jobs and they have two kids and a mortgage, and this is a disaster. So it's, it's, a, it's easy to see why people are so emotional. Is some of the same kind of a divisiveness that we've seen largely in the United States since the pandemic took hold, is some of that seeping into these groups as well? Do you sense that? Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, and, and I feel like 
you know, when we fly a plane, we 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 do it uh, based on procedure and and physics and science, and it's it's a fairly straightforward process once all of those scenes are considered. And the situation we're in now, it's the science is is barely in its infancy in, in order to deal with this. And the other issue is that the goal is to do a whole bunch of precautious things and have nothing happen. And, you know, that, that would be the ideal, right? We all have a huge lockdown and, and it just goes away and life is normal. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a balance between destroying the economy and, <clears throat> and uh, preventing, you know, widespread deaths due to COVID. And I don't think it's really clear what the, the line is. Uh, everyone's going through this for the first time. There are obvious economic implications for anyone whose work has been impacted, but I'm guessing there may be other implications for pilots once you've been out of the cockpit for a certain period of time, whether it's six months or a year. Will there be a, is there a sort of a process before you can fly again? Yeah, that's a, that's a really big issue. Um, and, you know, the government is sort of teetering on a decision right now on whether or not to back airlines financially and or or any companies for that matter. And to, to give an, a, a comparison, um, I, I just, you know, pick whatever whatever job you want, even a skilled job. You, know, you could be an electrician or you could be a, a surveyor or something like that. If you were to take six months or a year off, your qualifications would be totally intact. You wouldn't have to do any retraining or anything. But uh, if the airlines actually fail, a lot of those pilots will leave and go to other jobs. And um, if a pilot doesn't fly for six months, uh, they have to do retraining. And if they don't fly for two years um, on, on the type of aircraft they're trained on, they have to redo the entire training course. Uh, and that can be worth, you know, thirty, forty thousand uh, dollars. And I don't think that um, that sort of forethought is is being put into the the decision to 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 back these airlines. A lot of other countries around the world are doing that, um, and I think it's important uh, for Canada to do it because once these, you know, if airlines fail in a big way in Canada they won't come back uh, for quite a while, I think. I looked up a couple of numbers just before we had this conversation, and one that really struck me was that since the beginning of this, U.S. airline carriers have grounded 1,800 major aircraft that were in use earlier in the year. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, one jet's big, you know, five jets or a lot of jets, you know, 1,800 aircraft. Now, with a car, sticking a car away for a couple of months, that's not such a big deal. But I understand it's a much, much bigger deal with a passenger jet. You don't have to give us all the details, but what happens to a jet when it's taken out of service for, um, you know, an undetermined period of time? So I, I'm not an engineer, um, so I don't know the exact procedure. But basically, um, a, a jet is is designed and meant to fly um, everything from... Uh, the the regular thermal 
changes that it goes through as it climbs and descends uh, to the fluids, hydraulics, um, motors uh, that are running, sediment that happens in, in tanks and fluids. Uh, all of these things uh, impact the function of the aircraft. And so what happens is the airline has to continue to maintain all of the aircraft that are sitting there doing nothing. And the only way to stop that is to go through a, a lengthy uh, mothballing procedure where the fluids are drained and maybe a particular storage fluid is, is refilled into the system that, uh, that's designed to sit for long periods of time. Um, it's also a, quite an expensive procedure. Uh, and then to reverse it again is also extremely expensive. Um, and, you know, some airlines are, are spending millions of dollars a month on leases for aircraft that, that would have been generating revenue and now are sitting on the ground. So the, the ramifications of this are just colossal for, for, uh, for airline operations. What do you miss most about your job? Obviously, you know, the regularity of it and, and the paycheck, but I'm looking to see if there's more of kind of an emotional connection with, with what you do. You know, there's, there's an experience that maybe only pilots can uh, relate to, but it's amazing to go to work on a, on a rainy, cloudy day. And, uh, you know, maybe it's been like that for a week and you get in the plane and you take off and you climb out over uh, the clouds. And when you, when you pop out on top of the clouds, uh, it's sunny and it's like this ocean of white fluff. Uh, it's uh it's, it's quite a, an inspiring uh, experience, and I, I miss it. I really do. If we look back on aviation history, there's a really rich tradition of, you know, amazing firsts, you know, first crossings of, you know, uh, San Francisco to New York. And, of course, Charles Lindbergh crossing uh, the Atlantic to Paris in the spirit of St. Louis comes to mind. Is there one aviation feat that you really admire, and if so, why? Uh, I think that um, some of the, the more recent ones were, uh, I think it was called Voyager. They, they flew all the way around the earth nonstop. Um, and I, I actually saw that aircraft at the, uh, the uh, Aviation Museum in Washington. It was a fairly remarkable design. Um, that's a pretty amazing one. Um, and we're getting into things now where you have solar-powered aircraft that can fly indefinitely. They, they charge enough, uh, enough battery power to, to keep it running at night and uh, recharge during the day. Um, I think those are pretty incredible. I, I recall watching that particular uh, flight that you're talking about and my recollection is that Bert Rattan, who is an aircraft designer of sort of great renown, that he designed that aircraft, scribble it down on the back of a napkin is, is my recollection. But uh, at least you got to see it. Uh, it must be really quite something to see that. Yeah. Um, and now that you bring up Bert Rattan, of course, uh, the uh, Virgin Galactic um, space flights are also an incredible feet. He designed that aircraft as well. 
uh, pretty amazing to be able to take off, fly to space, and then come back and land again. Would you do that if it became affordable? Would you take that chance? I think so, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Now, I know from being inside of the cockpit, you're used to all sorts of cockpit noises, but this noise here indicates that we're in the final little phase of our interview. And I'm just going to ask you a few fast questions and I'm just looking for a few fast answers. So the first one is, what is the favorite aircraft that you've flown? Oh, it's hard to say. I would say really enjoyed flying the, the Dash 8. It was a really, really enjoyable aircraft to fly. What is the most beautiful part of the world to fly over that has been kind of one of your regular routes? Got to be the Canadian Rockies. Uh, just stunning, breathtaking views. I, I enjoy it every time I fly over them. What's it like when there's a delay, you've got a plane full of passengers who want to get home and it's beyond your control and you're the guy who has to keep picking up that microphone? Uh, it's uh, really difficult. I, I was in Manchester once and uh, we had a, a breakdown and everyone was angry at us, but uh, you just keep trying to uh, do your best and inform them and keep them as happy as possible. <laughs> For when we all get back flying again, and uh, one of the other stats I looked up is that international air travel is down year over year, 84% from one year ago. But once we all get our vaccines and we're back in the air again, is there one thing that airline passengers could do on board that would make things easier for everyone? I think um, just realizing that the people that are there are, are humans. Uh, they're, they're not just automaton, automatons from a, from a company. Uh, I think I've seen a lot of people be rude and cruel to crew members. And it, it's something that, you know, we're, we're tired too. It's been a long pairing. I think, uh, I think everyone needs a little more understanding and patience. Richard, I look forward to you being able to get back in the cockpit. I look forward to the rest of us being able to get back and travel. Listen, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating. Thanks for sharing your inside story today. No problem. Thanks very much. You know, there was something Richard said that really stuck with me. It was about leaving the ground on a rainy gray day when everything seems gloomy and then finally punching your way through to sunshine. It's like a different world, transformed from the one you left behind. And you know what? I like to believe this pandemic will resolve kind of like that. It will take time, it will take patience, and it will take science. But that sunshine is coming, and honestly, truly, I really can't wait until humanity once again can stand together in that sunlight. I'm Scott Simi, and you've been listening to Inside Stories. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.